Are you worried about what comes next in your life? The uncertainty that the future holds. How life might change for you. New schools, new jobs, new places to live. You might be worried about money or making ends meet for yourself or your family. You may be worried about health, your own or a loved one. Or maybe you're worried about this world seemingly growing opposition to our faith. It's easy to worry. What will happen when, when or if we become outcast in society? Or worse, what will happen when everyone at work waves a certain flag and you don't? What will happen when it's illegal to raise your children in a way that you believe to be right? What will happen to you today if you courageously share your faith and it doesn't go well? Maybe you're not worried about yourself, but you're worried about your kids or your grandkids and looking around at the world that they are growing up in or they will grow up and it can be hard not to be concerned. Now, I don't bring this all up to get your blood pressure or stress levels up today. I bring this up because we all live with anxieties and fears on some level, most of which have to do with the future, what's coming. And I also bring this up because I firmly believe that the Bible speaks into our life situation. That it was written to and for people like us who found themselves in anxious, anxious spots with worrisome futures. We find some people like this in the pages of Deuteronomy, the long, ancient book that we've been studying together for about a year now. Today brings us to the 31st chapter, which you can open up to now, Deuteronomy 31. Here we find the Israelites on the brink of the promised land, their long-awaited home. But they had gone through quite a lot to get to this point, even just two things. They went with their slavery, they went through nomadic wandering in the desert, and entering Canaan didn't seem like it was going to be a walk in the park either. They had to go to war and fight some really strong enemies. It was scary. It was risky. It was fraught with peril. And it was in this context that Moses gets up to the to speak to the Israelites one last time. But he doesn't just give them a motivational pep talk. Like, You've got this. I believe in you. Actually, we're going to see Moses was not super optimistic about Israel's future. But neither does he give in to a pessimistic despair about what's coming, thinking that all is lost. Instead, he encourages Israel with the one absolute certainty that he knows will be true. God's presence among his people. Things may go well at certain times. Things may go terrible at certain times. But God would be there through it all. Let's see this together. 
starting in verse 1, says this. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. So Moses is no spring chicken. He is old. <laughs> and he's feeling the limitations that come with old age. He can't come in or go out as he used to. And he knows that this is a, a harbinger of things to come. That, that and the fact that the promised land was right on the door, their doorstep, which God had declared that he would not enter. He continues, The Lord has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan, the Jordan River. We know that this was a, a punishment from a time when Moses directly disobeyed the Lord. So as he approached his end in this chapter, it seems as though Moses officially stepped down as Israel's leader. However, Moses wouldn't be leaving them leaderless. Not at all. As we'll see in a moment, there was a successor waiting in the wings. But even more importantly than that, God was their supreme leader, and he wasn't going anywhere. Look how he continues this. So I, the Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. So Moses was like, I won't be going with you, but God will be. It's a lot better anyway, right? The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. So here Moses is pointing to God's track record. He's like, he has done it before, and he's going to do it again. God wouldn't only lead them into war, he would lead them to victory. Now, we've talked a lot about the rationale for the conquest of Canaan, the morality behind it, so I'm not addressing that today. But if you weren't with us when we did talk about it, I'd be happy to, to help you out there if you're bothered by that. But this is just saying God is going to bring them into victory. He's going to do it. While God would remain their ultimate leader, though, he says he's going to lead them through human leadership. You may have noticed the, the brief mention of Joshua at the end of verse 3. It says, just like God would go over before his people, Joshua would go over at their head. So who was Joshua? Joshua was a, a long-term general in Israel. He was a Moses' right-hand man for years. He, he really was a natural successor to Moses. And, and the next book in the Bible is named after him, detailing how he did exactly what Moses prophesied here would happen. But in the end, Joshua only succeeded because God worked through him. It says in verse 4, The Lord will do to them as he did to these other kings. Verse 5, And the Lord will give them over to you. And so, given all this that's happened, Moses reaches his main point, repeating himself for emphasis. Verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. 
He will not leave you or forsake you. You're not embarking on this journey alone. You've got a sovereign, almighty, holy, omnipotent traveling companion. And what this truth should have done for the people of Israel really should do the same thing for us today. And that is that God's presence with us, His presence with us strengthens our courage. God's presence with us should strengthen our courage. Just like a a little child who wakes up in the middle of the night feeling alone and scared and runs into their parents' bedroom just to know that they're there. We are not truly alone in this unpredictable, painful, hostile world. We have a Heavenly Father who reassures us over and over again in Scripture that He's with us. He's with us. Therefore, there is no reason to fear. Moses says this both positively and negatively. Be strong and courageous and do not fear or be in dread. But but why take courage? Why not be afraid? He says, For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. God goes with you now, and by the way, He's not just going to abandon you in the future either. Some might wonder, well, how is that supposed to strengthen our courage? And the answer is, because God is infinitely stronger than anything else ever. Okay? Think of the, the kids running into their parents' room when they're scared. The, the fears that they feel at those times are usually irrational or unfounded. And a, a simple hug or a cuddle is enough to relieve those fears. However, sometimes there are real dangers. Right? That, that can cause fear. No matter who else is around you. If a house is on fire, or a, a car is careening out of control, or a bear is outside the tent. Right? They'd be right to be afraid, regardless of who's with them. Why? Because we are not stronger than those dangerous things. There are some things that a a stronger person can't necessarily protect you from. But there is no such thing with God. Nothing is dangerous to God. God is dangerous (laughs) to everything else. But if God is on our side, if God is for us, all fear then becomes irrational. Some of you may wonder, well, this was a promise that was given to the Israelites over 3,000 years ago. Can we actually claim that this is true for us as well? Valid question. In the book of Hebrews, written to the followers of Jesus for every age, it quotes what God says here. It says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor You know what the effect is there for us in Hebrews? 
the same as it was for Israel here in Deuteronomy. Quoting from some Psalms, Hebrew continues, So, so because I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Then it, it, right after that it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, yes, this still applies to us, absolutely. God's promises to never leave his people are for all his people, period. You may also wonder, why was not fearing so important? What harm is there in a little fear? And the simple answer is that to worry or fear while God is actively by your side is an explicit lack of trust. It's a lack of faith. And faith is, like, it's at the heart of what God wants from his people, right? On the other hand, to be strong and courageous would be a demonstration of their trust and their faith in God. So, do we trust that Jesus is the same now as he was then and that he's in control? Do we have faith that he is with us and that he has our best interests at heart? In verse 7 and 8, Moses turns to Joshua individually with the same encouragement. It says this, And Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. If Israel was to be courageous, it was crucial that their leaders led the way in this. Just imagine if Joshua ever lost his nerve. Whoa, guys. I don't know. Those walls of Jericho seem really high. <laughs> That'd be a disaster. A recipe for disaster. Like everyone would lose their courage then. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a leadership position before, but it's easy to be anxious as a leader. It's easy to be anxious. It, it's not just yourself you're worried about anymore. You're worried about those under you. You worry if you're leading them well, if you're, or if you're going to lead them into disaster. And thus, these were extremely relevant words for a leader to hear personally and to take to heart. So, if you are a leader in anything from pastoring to the nursery, take this to heart, that God is with you as you lead his people. I need to remember this truth all the time. God is with me. But, but this truth was true for all believers. Verse 1 specifically said Moses spoke this to all Israel. So, what's got you worried today? What's got, what, what are you despairing over? What's got you discouraged? As the hymn says, you can take it to the Lord in prayer. But I'd also say you can take courage in the Lord in faith. Take courage in the Lord in faith. Because 
through Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us, and the Holy Spirit now, God is with us as much as ever. Even if you're in deep discouragement or depression, take this to heart. Martin Luther, who suffered from heavy depression at times in his life, taught that there are two ways to think about God, and only one is biblical. Okay? Uh, Glenn Scrivener explains this view of Luther's. He says, One way to view God is a theology of glory. God is up there, and we ascend through our strength. The other is a theology of the cross. God comes down here because we have no strength of our own. One theology says, There's light at the end of the tunnel. Keep trudging. The other says, I know it's dark, but Christ is here. This is the theology of the cross, and it's indispensable for sufferers, which is all of us. It may be truly dark for you, but the, but the truth that Christ is with you is far cold. And even there, in those dark places, you can choose to take courage in Jesus. Be strong and courageous. At this point, Moses took a break from speaking, a writing hiatus, if you will. Either that or he had already taken time to write, and he's now making a presentation. Look at verse 9, he says, then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. There is great benefit in creating repetitive habits for spiritual growth. People likely would have heard the law and learned the law at home and at worship all the time. But every seven years, he says, as you gather, there's to be a special reading of the law when the whole nation gathered together to, to remember and to refocus. But notice a, a key phrase in verse 11 says, this was all to happen when they appeared before the Lord. Thus, in a special way, the law was to be read and reaffirmed in God's presence. It was in God's presence. And what was the purpose of all this ceremonial formality? Verse 12 and 13 gives the answer. It says, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your town, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. If this chapter is all about reminding people of God's presence, which I think it is, then this is the truth that comes through at this point. God's presence with us 
teaches us fear. God's presence with us should teach us to fear Him. You see that? He says it twice, but look at verse 12. It says, Assemble everyone together within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And you go, wait, wait, wait. Your first point said that God's presence strengthens our courage. Now you say that it also teaches us fear. Right? So it increases courage and fear. How is that? Well, that's because we're talking about two distinct kinds of fear. Right? The, the only biblically appropriate kind of fear is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord. Nothing else. We should absolutely fear God for who he is and what he can do. Since, since God is so perfectly holy and all-powerful and righteously just, sinful humans are not, shall we say, safe in his presence. And that doesn't mean we should be terrified of God, but that does mean we should have a deep awe a reverence, a, a worshipful apprehension of God. That we must not treat him cavalierly. He's still God after all. But if we fear God appropriately, that actually helps eliminate all other fears. In Luke 12, Jesus told his followers to not fear other people who would kill them, but to instead fear God, declaring, yes, I tell you, fear him. And then, immediately after that, he said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So we're to, to fear not and to fear God at the same time. They go together. Especially, we're to do this, especially since the Almighty God is always with us. He's with us. I was recently driving along a road when I noticed a police officer standing on a side street, a radar gun out. I immediately checked my speed. thought, ooh, I should probably slow down a little bit. <laughs> The next morning, I drove past the same spot and saw the same thing. The cop was around this hidden corner looking to catch speeding drivers. But then I thought, wait a sec, that looked the exact same as yesterday morning. And it was about that time that the Ottawa police announced that they were using decoys, these metal cutouts of cops. And they call them constable scarecrows used to deter people from speeding. But you know that feeling if you drive, right? If you notice police nearby, it doesn't need to be speed. You just, you just check yourself. Am I doing anything right now that's going to get me into trouble? See, knowing that someone is there immediately affects your behavior. Now, this picture totally breaks down because God does not use decoys. And God is not just 
sitting around random corners waiting to jump out and catch you. But, here's the thing. God's around every corner. And in front of every corner. He's not hiding. Okay? Literally, every moment of every day, we are in His presence. We either hardly ever grasp this, or we don't believe this, because we certainly don't live like this. When we are aware of God's constant presence, we naturally learn to fear Him. And when we fear God properly, it should always affect the way we live. This should have happened with Israel. As they learned the fear of the Lord, it says that they would become careful to do all the words of God's law. It would change how they live. When we read Scripture and we teach it and we preach it together, this should be our goal, right? That we would hear and learn to fear the Lord. This should reaffirm our commitment as a church to the, to the audible, public, communal reading of Scripture, to the, the preaching that is deeply rooted, not in our own words, but in the words of God. As Daniel Block says, if the call to formal communal worship is fundamentally an invitation to appear before the divine king for an audience with him, surely what he has to say to his people is more important than what they have to say to him. This should lead all of us to, to commit our lives to the regular hearing of the Word of God. It has the power to change your life as you learn to fear the Lord. After Moses handed over his written copy of the law, it was God's turn to speak. Look with me in verse 14. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. Can you picture this powerful scene? It says it took place in the tent of meeting. Exodus 33 tells us about when Moses first set up this tent outside the, the camp as a place for people to meet with God. And there, we see that this wasn't the first time that Moses or Joshua experienced this. It says this there. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. There we see Joshua's really eagerness to be with God in his presence, to learn his ways. But, but he, he did this each time this happened. 
everyone knew that it was weighty with significance. God was meeting with man. All of his glorious presence was right there in this visible, towering pillar of cloud. Prior to the the tent of meeting, God had appeared in a pillar of cloud as he led his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. It was a, a visible manifestation of his presence leading them. Whether this looked like a pillar of fog or a tornado, it must have been breathtaking. And when God appeared like this, everyone would go outside and worship until the cloud left. Now in Deuteronomy, God calls one last meeting. It means a special word for Joshua. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. Now before he speaks directly to Joshua, he has a word for Moses as well. We're going to look at what he says to Joshua first. And what we're going to see in, in his commissioning of Joshua is this. That God's presence with us empowers for mission. God's presence empowers his people for mission. The verb commission means to, to order or authorize a person to do something. It's to give someone a job to do along with the blessing and the authority to carry it out. Skip down to verse 23. Verse 23 to see the the mission that God commissioned Joshua with. It says this in verse 23. And the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them, I will be with you. So, what was it that it gave Joshua the courage to attack people that were far stronger than they were? Was it his military experience? His know-how? His strategy? His physical strength? No. Uh, What was it that would empower Joshua with the ability to carry out this huge mission that God was giving him? The answer was the presence of God with him. I will be with you as you do this. Did you know that that followers of Jesus have been commissioned by God as well? We have. We call it the Great Commission. And it's it's the main thing that we as a church are here on earth to still do. Unlike Joshua... We are not supposed to be carrying out a or leading a physical land conquest. But let's compare God's commission of Joshua here with our own. Because the parallels are pretty cool. This verse here in Deuteronomy is in the context of Moses calling on heaven and earth as witnesses. And in the context of ensuring that people are consistently taught to do God's commands. Heaven and earth, teach them to do God's commands. 
Now listen to Jesus' commissioning of us. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then, as God told Joshua, I will be with you, what does he tell us? And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, our, our whole message is founded on the idea that God, in, in Jesus, God is with us. And then that God himself came down to us to save us from our sin by his death and his resurrection. And now we're told to go make disciples by preaching this good news to the world. We sometimes get intimidated by this. We think it's quite difficult or it's scary. But God is with us. Always. All the way to the end. You are not only commanded. You are not only authorized. You are accompanied by God. And you are empowered by Him. Don't be afraid. Don't hold back. Be strong and courageous. As you carry out the commission that God gives us. Preach and spread the gospel to all who will hear you out. For his kingdom will come into this land of ours and into all the lands of the earth. And he'll be with us until then. Now we have one last point to see from this passage in the message that God gives to Moses, along with the message that Moses then relays to the people. But here, the passage takes a pessimistic turn as God gives a, a little sneak preview of the future. George Athos says that Yahweh's words to Moses here are anything but encouraging. In fact, they are filled with pessimism and disappointment about Israel's projected course. Yahweh confirms here that Israel will indeed break the covenant and suffer his punishment. The future looks grim. But the point that these verses will communicate relates to what we've already seen. It's about God's presence. And that, that we see here that God's presence with us confronts our sin. God is with us and his presence confronts us in our sin. Now this section is really like a preamble to next week's passage. But look in verse 16. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. And this we're taken aback, right? Because God just 
said that he will never leave or forsake his people. But here he says, if they forsake him, he'll forsake, or if they forsake him, they'll, he'll forsake them and hide himself from them. How in the world could these both be true? It's a paradox. But it's so true. And history proves it over and over again. When Israel fell, just as God said they would, he exiled them, just as he said he would. And yet, even at that point, Scripture always seems to hold out hope for the future. That in God's mercy, that wouldn't be the end. God may have been hidden for a time, he most certainly was not God. Even when it would appear as if he was God, he would leave himself witnesses. And the rest of the chapter mentions three different witnesses who would essentially testify to Israel over the years about the Lord and remind them about how far they'd fallen from him. The first witness, though, is an interesting one. It's a song. A song. Verse 19, Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. We're going to look at the song itself next Sunday. It's the next chapter. But did you notice verse 21? It says the song would confront them as a witness. And how? Because it would live unforgotten in their kids' mouths. Apparently, it was a really catchy song. Be sung for centuries. Any parent here knows that when a song gets stuck in their kids' heads, it can get irritating. And God basically says here, I'm going to stick a song in your kids' heads. It's not just going to be, when they sing it, it's not just going to irritate you. It's going to confront you. Just imagine someone heading out the door to go worship Baal or something, some other false god. And they hear their little son or daughter sing a, a tune from the other room. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no god beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. That's one of the song's verses. <laughs> I think that would stop me dead in my tracks. But, but you get the point, even when God seemed absent, he would still be speaking to them, even through a song. Once God finished speaking to Moses and Joshua here, Moses turn to the people to give them final, some final instructions. You see them in verse 24. It says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law 
and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Now that's how you introduce a song. And people must have been shell-shocked by this message. But the main thing I want you to see here, to notice, is again, the Lord's witnesses. The Lord's witnesses. The book of the law itself would act as a witness, be set beside the Ark of the Covenant, which always represented the Lord's presence. And then, like in the last chapter, he again calls heaven and earth as witnesses. So we've got a song, a book, and heaven and earth. All as witnesses. No matter how far they fell, they could always remember a tune. They could always recall words. They could look around and see creation around them. They'd have no excuse. And God would always have a witness. Some of you aren't satisfied with this and you think, well, I thought God said he'd be personally with them. No matter what. So what gives? His patience gave out. In the face of the people's relentless sin. And he judged them. But even at their lowest point, God had not forsaken them entirely. Think of what he said through the prophet Hosea right in the middle of saying, you know, my people are bent on turning away from me. I'm not going to raise them up. Oh, but then he says, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. See, God had to confront sin. He had to condemn sin. But his compassion still burns strong. And, and that's why he eventually sent his son. To, to confront and condemn our sin. And to show us compassion. Romans 8 says, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God is with us, and His Spirit now with us. Absolutely still confronts us in our sin, convicting us of it. Consider this, in Hebrews 13, where it quotes, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's in the immediate context of warning us to watch out for certain sins sexual immorality, love of money, discontentment, false teaching, and more. It's all there in Hebrews 13. He I will never leave you nor forsake you. God may be confronting you today with 
sin that is currently in your life. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Cling to it or repent of it. Leave it behind. The way Moses ends his speech here is like the opposite of modern motivational speaking. Tim Keller points this out, saying, you know, Moses has been preaching, live like this, live like this, great. But how does a motivational speaker end? After you've been telling people to live like this, and live like this, and in conclusion, you're going to fail. You're not going to do any of the stuff I'm talking about. You're going to miserably fail. I'm wasting my breath. That's how Moses ends here. Quite the downer, but not entirely, because it's basically telling us you're going to need a savior. You're going to need a savior. God's presence confronts our sin, and thus it exposes our need for a savior. And one day, God sent that savior. So. I hope, I pray that you will trust in Him. You will put your whole life in that basket. Trust the Lord Jesus the Savior. So does this all mean that there's no reason to worry because everything in life should be amazing now? No. With the pessimistic way this passage concludes, I obviously cannot guarantee you that what will come next in your life is going to be amazing at all. Some of you are in a season that is not at all right now. But, what can I say? If you are in Christ, you are in Christ, I can guarantee you that God will go with you. That will be enough. Heavenly Father, draw us to yourself today through the gospel of your Son. Give us life, new life in your heart.